Welcome to Crosspoint. We've been sitting around the family table. That's the picture we've used to describe how God brings people into His family and helps them grow. Here's what God has His heart and mind set on. The entire Bible tells me this. When we call ourselves children of God, what that means is God wants us in His family at the cost of the life of His own Son, Jesus Christ, for this reason. He wants us to grow. He wants for His children what you want for yours if you're a parent. You want those children to grow to full-blown maturity. You want them to be all that God made them to be. You want them to be not only knowledgeable but wise. You want their character to be fully developed so that in the storms of life and the many temptations that will be thrown their way in their relationships, in their marriage, in their career, in their hobbies, that they will stand fast and be truthful. You want them to be skilled as well. You want your kids, whatever they end up doing, your hope and prayer is that they'll be good at it. Your heavenly Father is trying to grow children up like that. So we've used this picture of the family table wherein God invites people into His family if only they will do the most miraculous thing in the world, if they will turn away from themselves Repent of their sin, that's literally what it means to repent, to turn away, to change your mind, to make a 180. If they will turn to Jesus, they will be saved, and they'll be adopted into the family of God, and the family table will grow. We imagine people in that stage of life, far from God, maybe not feeling any pain or sense of loss because they're spiritually insensitive to Him, we imagine that as a chair that dead people sit in. They're physically alive, but as Jesus told a religious leader named Nicodemus, they need to be born again. People born into the family are spiritually baby Christians. They're in the family, and the family rejoices. That's why we cheer so loudly when someone is baptized. Those generally are people who have just recently come to faith in Christ, and we all know what a big deal that is. And we cheer and we applaud even if they're strangers. Babies that are well-fed and cared for by the rest of the family, they grow up and they become children, and for the first time in their spiritual life, they're interdependent. They have enough knowledge, they're starting to figure out their place in the family, and they can begin to contribute. Their defining characteristic, both in physical and spiritual life, is they're self-centered. A child cannot help but see the world primarily through the lens of himself. That's why mothers and fathers, when they're young, when their children are young, spend so much time asking some version of this question, how would you feel if she did that to you? I don't know, sad, I guess. Somebody told me from their child development studies, empathy, in other words, the ability to place yourself in the other person's shoes, that kicks in magically. It begins to form around the age of six. Seems a little late for me, but that's what they said. That's what they've studied. And we try to draw that empathy out and teach it and show it, and then children continue to grow, and they reach the chair that occupies our attention in Scripture today, they become young adults. 
There's one more chair after this. Next weekend, the parent chair, which is full-on maturity, not perfection, but full-grown maturity. But this might be my favorite chair to explain because so many of you can so quickly move into this season of your spiritual life if only you're willing. See, unlike the physical life that simply takes time, you can't grow a child from the nursery of Hogue Hospital into a teenager quickly. That just takes a certain amount of time. In the spiritual life, as soon as people are in the family of God and they have their father's DNA, if you will, rapid, explosive, exciting growth can happen, and many Christians who are currently in the child chair could make the turn and enter the season of young adults. What is that like? What does that chair look like? Well, they bring great joy to families because now, for the first time in their spiritual walk with Jesus, they're able to help the rest of the family grow. 1 John chapter 2, in his first letter, John explains three seasons in the spiritual life. He calls one group little children, another group young men, which obviously includes women as well, and another group he he calls fathers, which obviously includes adult women in the congregation as well. These are three stages, people who are in the family of God, but that's about all they know. They know their sins are forgiven, but they're still very much learning. The young men, this middle chair, look what he writes. Read with me 1 John 2, verse 14, right off the screen. The Bible says… I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. I'm going to do a little simple exercise with you, and I want you to engage this, if you'd like, to study the Bible with you. When you're reading the Bible, you're actually hearing the very Word and voice of God. You should never read the Bible as any other book, especially a textbook where you just master content. When you were in school, particularly if it was a subject you didn't like, it was just something you had to put up with to get out of junior high or high school or whatever it was, you just committed a lot of facts, at least I did, to memory very briefly, then you ran to the desk kind of purge that all over the test, right? Just got that all out of your system, and you had this thought, thank God that's over. I'll never have to think about that again. Anybody approach any subjects like that? Not Scripture. Scripture is God's own Word. He has put it in writing so that it will endure generation after generation, but it's more than text on a page. It is the very voice, the very speech of God into your life. And the way to understand what God is saying to you is simply to ask questions. Slow down and ask questions of the text. Here's the question for this passage. John here is speaking to these people who can be described as young men. They are no longer children. They are spiritually mature enough that they have grown out of the first steps of their walk with Jesus. Here's the question. What is true of this middle chair of the young adults? What's the first thing you observe? They are what? They're strong. They were nourished with milk, but they've moved beyond the basic things that God had to tell them. 
They've grown strong. They have heard the Word of God enough and put it into practice long enough that they have become spiritually strong. They are not easily taken advantage of. They are not as vulnerable as they once were. They are strong. What else? The Word of God abides in you. Now, there's a word we don't often use in 21st century America, right? Abides. Men, if you've ever, if you've recently asked your wife or your hope she'll be my wife someday, if you've asked her recently to a date, if you said, it's been really busy, would you like to go to a nice restaurant and abide with me for a season? Probably not with an invitation like that, right? Just sounds strange. What's an English synonym for abide? How would you explain this verse to a younger person? Dwells, stays, lives. That's the idea. The Word of God has come into their life, and it's not only that they've listened to it, they've spent enough time listening to God that His Word has made itself at home in their life. If their life is a home, they've invited Jesus into the whole house to make Himself comfortable to clean things out and rearrange the furniture to make himself at home in their life. So it's not a question only of hearing the Word or grudgingly going to the Word because you know it's good for you. You've spent enough time listening to God in Scripture that now the Word is at home in you. It's not just reading, it's sticking with you. And what's the third thing? They have overcome the evil, and that's a big phrase. And that's not said of little children. People in this season of spiritual life in full blooming maturity know they're in a spiritual battle, and they've not only joined it, they're winning. They know they're in a fight. See, that's one of the things that sometimes you experience in a family. Depending on the age of the people in the family, the parents know there's trouble. The parents know dad got laid off. The parents know mom is very sick. The older kids know that there's trouble. The little kids, they're, thank God, sometimes blissfully unaware. There's war raging. There's trouble brewing around their family, and the little ones don't even know it. And sometimes we're thankful for that. When you reach a certain age of maturity, you not only know the fight is there, you're in it. You're joining it. This is why young adults spiritually bring such joy to families. They are in the fight. Secondly, and the most important characteristic for young adults, if you're to ask yourself one question saying, am I still a spiritual child or have I matured? Here's the question. Do you focus your life on Jesus and other people? That's what young adults do. That's the blessing they bring to a family. If you've got a normal 21-year-old in the family and you've got a large family and the kids are kind of spread out, parents are enormously grateful for a 21-year-old because now he can help with his third-grade brother. He doesn't need care. He can be a caregiver. He can be a provider. He can help. And if he's a normal, healthy, responsible, loving 21-year-old, he'll gladly do that. He sees his life beyond himself. Listen to Paul describe his young protege. Paul had a young preacher named Timothy. 
and all the rest of this passage is based around the life of Timothy. Paul wrote to a church from prison, a church in Philippi in the ancient world, and listen to what he wrote them. Paul wrote, now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I also may be encouraged when I hear news about you. Here's Paul's maturity. He's in prison, but he says, my hope, even as I'm in in these chains, my real hope is that I can send Timothy to find out how you're doing so that he can bring good news back. I'm in prison myself, but my thoughts, my hearts are with you. Here's why he wants to send Timothy. For I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. Now, these are real people. When I read to you the ancient letters of Scripture, understand you're reading real documents. Paul sat down, or perhaps he dictated, and someone else wrote because of Paul's evidently poor, very poor eyesight. A real man sat in a real prison, and someone else actually wrote a physical letter. This is the Apostle Paul, perhaps the greatest Christian the world has ever seen, a former religious zealot. Today, we might call him ultra-Orthodox, who hated because of his religious beliefs, hated the very name of Jesus, and was actively persecuting Christians and trying to put them to death. But he met Jesus himself personally in the same way that you can. You can understand that Jesus is a real person who actually died on a real cross for your actual sins and can give you real, visible, eternal, practical, lived out eternal life. Paul knew that. And the greatest Christian that perhaps has ever walked the earth was living his life and preaching Jesus and drawing people to himself. And in the height of his ministry, he said, after all this, I only have one guy who cares about your situation. That's stunning to me. It tells you how rare spiritual maturity actually is. That's why we have to give intentional practice. That's why we have to pay attention. Please listen to this. You won't grow up spiritually on accident. In the physical world, if you have a bare minimum of nutrition and shelter and clothing, you grow up. Maybe not to your full potential, but people physically are remarkably adaptable, and they will because of the wonderful way God made us, they will grow up generally to maturity even after tremendous adversity. If you don't pay careful attention to Jesus and His Word and actively day by day follow Him, you can stay spiritually immature for the rest of your life, and that will be the saddest thing for you and the people around you that could ever happen. Paul's battling with it because he says, I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interest. That's the test. The test of spiritual maturity is, do you focus on yourself or on the concerns of Jesus and others? Paul says, all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now watch this. Paul says, I love Timothy and I want to send him because I don't have anybody else to care about your stuff. Did you see that? Now he says, here's the problem. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. This is subtle, but I have to be crystal clear about it. Paul says, Timothy's unique because he cares about you. 
Everybody else only cares about themselves, not the things of Jesus. Well, first he says, Timothy cares about you, and then he starts talking about caring about Jesus. Which is it? Here's the point. When you care about other Christians and helping their spiritual development, you care about the things of Jesus. Caring for others is caring about the things of Christ. Until you start caring for the interest of other people, you may know a great deal about Christ, but you don't care like Christ does. Again, at the certainty of embarrassing her, one of the reasons that Michelle Rustad has been such a blessing and such a quiet inspiration to me over these last 12 years is I have seen five, sometimes six, sometimes seven days a week as she volunteers a lot in addition to her paid position. I've seen her persistently, consistently, many times with tears, put the interest of others ahead of her own. And that's what Jesus does. We've confused spiritual maturity with thinking that it's knowledge about Christ rather than having the heart and the care of Christ that defines spiritual maturity. That's what's happening. It can't be said often enough. If you want to truly be a Christian, others have to come first. You'll see this again and again in the few scriptures I have left to show you. What makes the Lord's example, His life shine, what makes your salvation possible is that He had the whole world set against Him and every reason and every right to turn to the Father and say, enough, I'm done. I won't finish. They don't deserve it. The pain is too much. The rejection is too hurtful. Take me home. And he never did. He kept your interest ahead of himself every moment until your salvation was secure. And what Jesus is in, that int- what he's actively developing, that's why we call ourselves his disciples. He's trying to make people act, think, choose, put their priorities together the way he did. Here's a simple way to understand it. Does Jesus care about Christians? Kind of a crazy question, right? Does Christ care about Christians? I didn't really get an answer. I got some, I got some knowing looks, like uh, that seems obvious. I'm seriously asking, does Christ, Jesus Christ, care about Christians? Yes, we bear His name. He calls Himself our Good Shepherd. When you care about Christians, you're just like Him. And this happens life on life. Look what Paul said to Timothy. You know his proven character because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Therefore, I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. This is the great test whether you will care about others more than yourself. My father-in-law has taught me a great deal about this ever since I met his daughter. And we started dating. I knew Sharice was the one about two minutes after I saw her. It took about two minutes because her boyfriend was standing in the way, and I, I couldn't get a good look, and I couldn't listen, but once I got to know her, she was the one. And then I had the privilege one day of emptying the nest. I married the baby of three, I've always said, publicly in front of the other two. Practice made perfect, and the third one, after two really good prototypes, the third model was absolute perfection. 
and my idiot brothers-in-law, and I have that, we're close, they're pastors too, so it's all in the family. They married the first two and did a mean thing to me a couple nights before we got married. We were all at my in-law's house, and they popped in an old movie, what is now an old movie, into the VCR, and a couple nights before I emptied the nest, I watched, with my brother-in-laws chuckling in the background, I watched the movie, Father of the Bride. If you've seen it, you know what a difficult emotional experience that was for me. I wanted to turn to him and say, I'm sorry, she can stay. I didn't know it was heartbreaking like that. Remember the basketball scene? He's playing the last basketball game. I just want to run out of the house and, you know, go live alone because there was no one else and no one better. But I was willing to do that if only to spare him the the indignity. Well, he put up with me as a son-in-law, and early in our marriage, we made a trip up the coast. And we went into something, I think it was the first time I'd actually seen it, because I grew up out of the country. I went into a uniquely American invention called an outlet mall. Are you familiar with these things? They build them out in desolate places. They're all roughly the size of Vermont, and they're just stores everywhere. And we got the three daughters and the three sons-in-law, and To my amazement, this man who hunted for food when he was a kid, who was a football player and a boxer and an athlete of all kind, who worked to help provide for his family in very difficult conditions from the time he was a little barefoot boy in East Texas. I'm telling you, a man's man, I'm watching him go into every store, ooh and ah over dresses, haggle with clerks about prices, give his opinion about whether the shoes were a good match for the particular dress. And I'm outside thinking about running into traffic just to get this over with. I mean, it's (laughs) brutal. And finally I said to him, sir, because it's always been like that and always will be, I said, sir, could I just ask you, my God, you're just really into this. How? And he said this, well, Bruce, God gave me three daughters. And when they were born and they started to grow up and they started showing an interest in these things, I didn't really care about any of it. But I love them. So I learned to enjoy the things they enjoy so that I can spend time with them. Boom. How big did I feel? That big, seen from an inch away. That's spiritual maturity. He has no interest in dresses. He has no interest in jewelry. He has an interest in his daughters. That's what love is. That's what maturity does. That's the kind of people that this church, in the name of Jesus and under his instructions, is trying to develop. Now, here's the warning about spirit people in the young adult chair. They're vulnerable to pride or discouragement while they begin to serve people. When you actually take Jesus at his word and you say, Lord, in your name, I'm going out to love, to serve, to forgive, to give the way you would, there will be a ditch on each side of that beautiful path. If it goes well, you'll be subject to the temptation of pride. When people start telling you what a difference you've made, you will think to yourself, I am God's gift to the local church. 
Jesus must be enormously relieved up in heaven that I am finally activated because now I'm going to make a difference. And your head swells up. On the other side, if it doesn't go well, and there will be times when it won't, and people do not receive your ministry, you try to encourage, you try to correct, you try to bless, you try to give wisdom, and it's not well received, you will be subject to discouragement. Listen to Paul talk to Timothy again. Let no one despise your youth. Now, why would he say that? Because somebody was. At this stage in Timothy's life, he is serving the church at Ephesus. False teachers are stalking these Christians, trying to lure them away from Christ, and Timothy is gritting his teeth through tears, Paul says, trying to do his best to serve them, and he's getting this treatment. Who are you anyway, kid? I want to hear this from Paul. I think you missed it. I think you're wrong. So, Paul says, let no one despise your youth. Instead, you should be an example to the believers. This is the young adult, someone who is an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, give your attention to public reading. He's referring to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Don't miss this. Do not neglect the gift that is in you. Why did Paul say that? Because when you are subject, as you're following Jesus and trying to serve people in His name, and you're rebuffed, you're rejected, you're insulted, people start gossiping about you. It just doesn't go well. At that moment, you'll be tempted to take your ball and go home. Do people still say that? You know what that means? When we were kids, before sports were entirely organized and run by professionals, neighborhood I grew up in, there were only a couple kids that had a good ball. We all, had, we all had a few things to play with, but there were a couple kids that had the right football or the right soccer ball. And if they were kids of poor character, if it didn't go well for them, they'd go, I'm going home, and take their ball with them, and now nobody can play. There's a lot of that in local church ministry because people will hear the Word of God, have an idealistic picture of what it will look like. I will take them the greatest person of all. I will introduce them to Jesus. I will show them in the Bible that God has actually spoken. God will show up in power. Lives will be changed. We'll all cry and pray and maybe write an original praise song on the spot together. Somebody's going to put a blog about it. It's going to go viral. I'm going to be amazing in the next two days for Jesus, and then you go out and run smack into spiritual warfare, nothing happens. And he said, that didn't work. I don't guess I'm the right person. I guess these people are too difficult. Do not neglect the gift that is in you. Do not succumb to discouragement or pride. Listen, please, those of you who are already serving, in this stage of life, you become idealistic, and idealism will make you naive and then dogmatic about Christians and the church. In that youthful idealism of now I get it and now I'm ready to serve, first you're naive because you think it's all going to be great. This is why when I was a freshman in Bible college, one of my classmates had made a particularly self-serving, proud statement. The professor looked at him and then at all of us and said, we really should be taking notes from you boys while you still know everything. Ouch. 
kept my head down for the rest of the semester. What is that? That's youthful enthusiasm. That is called being naive. And then when you discover what real problems, real people, real sin, real challenges are, you swing the other way and you become dogmatic and you say, I know what's wrong around here. If we could just get this pastor straightened out, if we, people actually knew how to pray, if people took the Bible seriously the way I do, and you become very dogmatic, and when that doesn't work, that leads to bitterness. And that leads to you back, going back around the table the wrong way, wedging yourself in the child chair again, saying, I tried, it didn't work, I'm done. And the spiritual gift that you were given that Jesus purchased at the price of his own life will sit wasted within you because you got discouraged, your pride was wounded, people were ungrateful, and rather than have the affirmation of God be enough, you said, I'm done serving, I'm going home. Taking my gifts, taking my offerings, taking my influence, taking the things that God has given me, I'm not giving them back again. Careful with that. Bitterness will always put you back in the child chair. One of the beautiful things, and just about everybody, I've been here long enough, I've seen Christians, ordinary Christians who work regular secular jobs, Monday to Friday, Monday to Saturday sometimes, serve and be treated with ingratitude and go through long spells where it doesn't seem to be making much difference and hardly anybody cares. I've seen them continually go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm doing this in your name, and it's not going very well. And the last person I tried to counsel didn't receive it, but they give it to him and they make peace with that situation and they entrust themselves and they stay in the fight and continue to put the interest of Jesus and the interest of others ahead of their own. That's what it looks like to turn the corner and mature. So what do we do for young adults? Three simple things and I'm done. First, what we do for all of them is we train them to serve. That's what people in the young adult chair need. They need training to serve. Listen to Jesus talk to his disciples. In fact, read this with me. Here's the backstory. Two disciples, brothers, have sent their mother to ask Jesus a special favor. Jesus, when this is all over, will you put one of my boys on your right hand and the other on your left? Up to you, of course, which is on the right and which is on the left. We'll leave that to you, but can we make sure right now just on the front side that they'll be taken care of? Well, the other ten heard about this audacious request, and they started griping about the two, so Jesus calls all the disciples over, and here's the talk. Read this with me. But Jesus called them over and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles dominate them, and the men of high position exercise power over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Why did Jesus come? To serve. See, the secular world, the world that does not account for God, they use power to wield it. 
Jesus used his power and his authority, which was matchless, eternal, and infinite. He always and only used his authority and power to serve and to save. If you'll truly be his his disciple, you'll take every bit of power and authority you're given and turn it not to make yourself great, but to use it to serve other people. That's what young spiritual adults need. They need, first of all, to be trained to serve, and here is exactly how we do it. They are equipped to help others to grow. Ephesians 4.12 says that the pastors and shepherds were given to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The saints, the Christians, the people set aside by God, by the salvation of Jesus, that's you. Those of us who are on this platform and are given that trust are here for one single reason, to prepare you for the service that God intends for you. What else needs to happen? Young adults need also to be trusted with opportunities. The greatest joy I have as a pastor, aside from personally being able to lead someone to faith in Jesus, that's number one and always will be, right up there with it is to see a Christian of any physical age step into this young adult season of their spiritual life, discover what God has made them to do, what a blessing He has created them to be, and watch them run with it. I got to tell you, Crosspoint, some of the most wonderful, meaningful, like eternity-moving things that this church does do not happen on this stage. They happen in the everyday life and in the quiet little ministry, some of whom will never make the bulletin. But what we have there is a woman with the heart and the mind of Jesus giving her gift to somebody else simply because she loves Jesus and she loves that other person. And those opportunities to hand those off and to watch Jesus work in the lives of hundreds of ordinary Christians is the most incredible thing ever. I literally, we've grown to the point, not only numerically, but spiritually, I literally can't get around sometimes to thanking all of you for the amazing things I hear that you do in love and service for others. But someday, whether I blow it or not and tell you properly and encourage you and equip you the way you should, someday you'll have the very praise of your heavenly Father because He gave you an opportunity. You took it and you finished the task that He gave you to do. In the ancient world, many people weren't literate. So when a letter from Paul arrived, it was a big moment, and they likely gathered the church for a public reading of Scripture. I want you to imagine how a young man named Archippus, who is mentioned in the tail end of Paul's letter to the Colossians felt when Paul read this in front of, when this letter of Paul was read to his whole congregation. Read it with me. Right at the end, almost as a P.S., Paul says this, and tell Archippus, pay attention to the ministry you have received in the Lord so that you can accomplish it. Now, if your name is Archippus and you're sitting there in your church and they pull this letter out and they say, great news, everybody. Paul wrote us another letter. You're getting through to the end of the letter and suddenly you hear your name mentioned. How would you feel about this? Hey, everybody, entire church, 
Tell Archippus, pay attention. That sound a little fatherly to you? That sound like a dad working with power tools with his 22-year-old son yelling, hey, pay attention. Kill us both. <laughs> Sorry. What's he telling him? Pay attention to the ministry you have received in the Lord. Archippus has his own ministry. It's not Paul's idea. This young man, whatever his, it was, has been entrusted with something to do by the Lord, and Paul's advice is simple. Pay attention so that you can finish. There's pride, there's discouragement, there's ingratitude, there's all kinds of things, Archippus, that will keep you from finishing well. Make sure that you finish. And the last thing and the final stage, and God willing, what I'd like to rededicate the rest of my ministry here with you to do is this simple task. Release those of you who are maturing spiritually to repeat the process that you've gone through yourself. The last letter that Paul ever wrote, he wrote, Timothy, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. If you look carefully at verse 2, there's four generations. Paul says, I met Jesus and I told you. Now I want you to find faithful people who will be able to tell still others. Brothers and sisters, we're always one generation away from losing sight of Jesus. Jesus isn't going away. He's eternal and He's coming back. But our personal relationship with Him, the legacy of following Jesus and being His disciples, that's always one generation from being extinguished. What young adults spiritually need is permission, blessing, training, and trusting so that they can be released to start this process, become spiritual parents, and start the process all over again. For those of you who are in your teens, 20s, and 30s, nobody in this church matters more than you do. Your value is immeasurable. Men my age, in 20 or 30 years, we'll be done. We'll be too physically weak, or we'll already be at home with the Lord, and it will be to you to follow Jesus and tell His goodness to your generation. The prayer of my heart is that we will be able to raise up in this difficult culture, this godless, increasingly hostile culture that doesn't even want to hear about Jesus, much less follow Him, that we will be able to raise up the greatest disciples that America has ever seen so that you will live in Babylon well, and you will see the heavenly, your heavenly Father bless you and your Savior lead you into places that we ourselves did not go. That's what we're in the process, poorly perhaps. That's what we're in the process of doing, of helping you grow to this stage of spiritual maturity where you make it about Jesus and others and stay humble and stay encouraged and keep forgiving and keep dealing with the ingratitude and the failure and the dryness so that you keep your gift and your life in the game 
so that the kids that you'll have will be even better disciples than you dared to be, and we will see genuine revival wherever Jesus has placed us. That's our heart. But what it takes is for you to move your eyes from yourself to the love of Jesus and the love of others. I pray you'll join me in that journey. Can we pray together? Two quick questions. Most important first, do you know Jesus as your Savior? Every weekend, I brag on Jesus and commend Him to you and tell you as best I can prayerfully that He is your only hope and He actually is, whether you know it or not, He is your eternal life. If you've been putting Him off and waiting to learn more, my simple personal invitation to you is that you would put all those objections down and trust Jesus and be saved this morning. That you would say to Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm putting you in charge. Save me. Make me your disciple. He will. No one who has thrown themselves on the mercy of Jesus has ever been turned away. He will save you. He will make you his disciple. He will teach you everything you need to know as you follow him. If you haven't done that, my simple invitation is that you'll do it right now, that you'll reach out to him in prayer and say, Lord, I get it. I'm sorry for my sin. Humbly, I ask you to forgive me. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for eternal life. Please make me your disciple. And if you do that, that you'll take the connection card on your bulletin and please let me know before you leave the service. The other question is broader. It encompasses more people. I'm talking to Christians. Are you ready, if you're not certain that you already have, are you ready to make the move from the child chair to young adult? How? To make a deep-seated commitment. Say, Lord, I will put you and others first. I don't even know where to start, but I'm willing. I heard your word. I want to obey it quickly. I want to grow up on your pace. I want to grow up as quickly as you'll bless me to do so putting you and others ahead of myself. If you're ready to do that, I promise you, on the authority of Scripture itself, God has good work for you to do here. I don't know what it is yet. You may not either. Your Heavenly Father knows the gift He gave you, knows the person He saved, and how He wants to grow you up in the family so that you will bless others. So, if you'll let us know, I'm ready to start that journey. It may take us a while. We're very, very human here at the church. Believe me, your leaders… But we'll meet, we'll talk, we'll text, we'll email, we'll do what it takes to get you started on this path. And in just a few months from now, if you'll follow Jesus, you'll be amazed and thrilled at the person you've become and the things that Jesus has done. I promise you. I've seen it happen hundreds and hundreds of times in this church alone. Humble yourself and say, Lord, I don't know it all, but I know enough, and I'm available. I'm here. I'm available. Take me and he will. Father, I pray for people as they make decisions that you would motivate people right now to reach for that card and let us know what they've said in prayer to you, that they would signal to us, Lord, their next steps so that we can take them together as a family of faith. We give you this offering, Lord, this you love cheerful givers, you say in your word. Jesus, you said it's more blessed to give than to receive. This is big boy, big girl stuff. This is a step of maturity that takes Christians' challenge. It's a, it's a matter of humility. Most of all, it's a matter of trusting you 
that we can give as generously as you say, and you will provide. So bless those who give. Provide for those, Lord, who cannot give. For those who are struggling and are unemployed or underemployed, I pray that you would provide for them. And for those who do not yet trust you just enough to give, bless them as well. Teach them to trust you and receive, Lord, from a grateful church this offering in Jesus' name. Amen.